Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Folklore, a podcast channel on New Books Network. My name is Nancy Ann, and I'm one of the hosts of this channel. Today, we have Dr. Jean Swallow, author of Yo Mama, Mary Mac, Boudreaux and Thibodeau, Louisiana Children's Folklore and Play, which is a study resulting from Dr. Swallow's 44 years of collecting children's folklore in southern Louisiana. The book has won the 2018 Chicago Folklore Prize for Excellence in Folklore Scholarship and the 2018 Opie Prize for the Best Published Scholarly Book on Children's Folklore. Dr. Swallow was born in New Orleans and has been an educator for 47 years and taught public school and university classes in Louisiana. Though retired, she continues to collect and study children's folklore. John, I'm so glad to have you here. Welcome. How are you doing? Thank you. Glad to be here. So. We're doing okay down here. Good. (laughs) And the weather getting hot there, right? Uh, We're approaching storm time. So, of course, everybody's nervous. I see. Well, I'm sure... (laughs) I'm sure it will be a little bit more relaxed this year. So um, you've been observing, so. you've been observing and collecting children's folklore in southern Louisiana for over five decades by now, and your book in itself encompasses forty-four years. When you first started collecting children's folklore, did you have an idea of what you wanted to do with all this material? Um, what was what was it about children's folklore that really intrigued you? When I first began, I was actually collecting French folklore. Uh, My grandmother spoke French, but in fact, both of my grandmothers spoke French, and they used proverbs to teach us. And that was my first collection and my first production. Then I realized something. I was teaching in the Orleans Parish school system at that time. And I could hear children playing games on the playground. Mm -hmm. And I wondered, who is collecting this wonderful stuff? I I hear it. It's exciting. They're doing hand claps and jump rope games. And they're teasing each other with very interesting teases and taunts. And I began writing them down in the late 60s in a notebook. And then... I joined the Louisiana Folklore Society while I was still being a student at University of New Orleans. And at that point, my mentor, who was in charge of my uh, interest in folklore, kind of guided me to areas that other people had not touched, and children's folklore was one. Hmm. Okay. And so... When you, um, uh, when you started collecting these, so uh, was you just started uh, writing them down, you know, kind of like, or, or, or were you formally collecting them when you first started collecting children's folklore? What happened was I moved from New Orleans to Baton Rouge, where I taught at 
Louisiana State University for two years. I was an English as a second language teacher and a wonderful woman named Mrs. Howard Samuel put out a bulletin asking for people to volunteer to collect folklore for the Bicentennial Project. I contacted her and we talked about all kinds of different ways to collect folklore and I suggested children's folklore and she was a little hesitant at first but then she gave me my first tape recorder. She handed me a big old handful of tapes and she said go for it and it was at that point in Baton Rouge, Louisiana that I began began recording children's folklore on tapes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Wow, that's pretty. Uh, so going all the way back into the 70s, that's when you started recording children's folklore. It's pretty fascinating. Yes. Yes. So in your book, in the first chapter, you have a chapter called um, uh, Boys Verbal Play. And so in that chapter, you first talk about the dozens, which is an African-American form of insult banter. And you describe a session in your uh, you describe a session in that in that chapter. First of all, can you tell um, can you tell me more about the dozens um, and share some examples that you've collected um, from you know from your years of research? Is it okay to give both clean and dirty dozens? Yes, yeah, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> and tell us okay. what clean and dirty dozens are. <laughs> all right, I was unfamiliar with dozens until I began collecting and I would tell the kids, tell me a joke. And they would come out with something. Um, I'll give you some examples. And then I started doing research. When I heard them say what they said, I thought, I'd better find out what the history of this is. And I went to Roger Abrams and William Labov and a couple of other people, John Dollard, who were all collectors of teenage African-American lore. And I learned what the dozens were. They are an insult ritual and they're patterned Mm -hmm. so that you start out by saying something like, well, I have some. So shall I read them? Sure. I'd love to hear some. So when they first started out, they gave me some clean dozens. And clean dozens go like this. Uh, Your teeth so yellow. When you went outside, the sun said, hello, mama. (laughs) Okay. Your teeth so yellow. When you look at the sun, the sun says, hey, Martway. (laughs) When your teeth so yellow, the sun say, I'm on vacation. So those are. (laughs) clean. Okay. And then when you say, there, okay, go ahead. Well, then it turns to yo mama. Well, mm-hmm. that, that changes things. The dirty dozens are often aimed at one's mother and are often the target of sexual jokes. Mm. And uh, the boys I interviewed started out with some mild ones. Yo mama so fat, every time she turn around, it's her birthday. Okay. And those, those are clean. Okay. <laughs> Unfortunately, they, get, <laughs> they go from there. <laughs> okay. So did you want to read a dirty dozen or no? All right. Interestingly enough, one of the dirty dozens I got was from a girl, uh-huh. not a boy. Okay. And she said, uh, spot your mama in the wagon. She say, hold there, my titties dragging. <laughs> okay. S- then she said, spot your mama in the alley, stuffing her booty with potato salad. Okay. <laughs> and others begin with, and these were from boys in the third grade, fuck your mama in the railroad tracks, baby jump out doing the ball and the jack. Mm. Mm. So the the method is you tell one of these things and the people in the group then try to one-up you by coming back really fast 
with the next couple of lines. Mm -hmm. And that's how it works. It goes back and forth, back and forth. And the boys, you know, punch each other and slap each other in the head while they're saying these things. They they stand very close together. Mm -hmm. And this ritual goes very quickly. Mm -hmm. And you're supposed to laugh. You, You can't be insulted by anything that is said. Okay, that was that was something I was interested in asking more about. So, um, is there a a line you know that people don't cross because you know I guess the clean is like more acceptable. They're more you know the more innocent kind of jokes, and the dirty dozens are more aimed at you know your mother or um, you know address you know or use um, uh, swear words or you know talk about sex um, and. You're not supposed to be insulted, but is there ever a line that gets crossed? I don't think so. I, I think the the worse it is, the better it is. Actually, if you can really come up with something vile, it's funny. I see. Okay. So you you, you try to push it. Yeah. I see. So it's all understood that it's it's in a joking like framework, but what really counts is like wit. Yes, exactly. And um, you mentioned um, in your in your book that there is this element, and you know, just now there's this element of performance of performance, like, and there and there's a um, there's a framework, or there's a, a there's a way that you're supposed to do it. What's a way not to do it? What's a yes. way where you're going to be booed out of the crowd? Oh, you get booted out of the club if you don't come up with something fast enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the recordings that I made, when the boys would be speaking quickly, and then one of the group would hesitate, he couldn't quite come up with the line fast enough. Mm-hmm. He was the one who got the the eye, you know, the, the eye cut up. to him. Yeah, or he was the one who wasn't listened to anymore. That's probably me. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, okay. And so this, is this um so you uh, this is not primarily something you mentioned in the your boys verbal play chapter but um girls also do um do the dozens as well right Yes um, they do and that struck me as since okay when I did my early research on the dozens it was all among teenage boys that it had been recorded. Mm-hmm. But in my recordings, I have a number of girls who were able to just carry on just as quickly as the boys. Mm-hmm. And then I saw teenage boys who were white using lines from the dozens, which they would scream from the school bus, uh, you know, to shock people when they were driving by just just to do it. You know, they were not participating in any kind of a ritual. They were just using the insult lines for shock. Mm. And this was and, predominantly white boys. And that was not well received? I don't know. People were driving by in the car. <laughs> okay. Oh, well, I'm just wondering how context, if you yell out these lines, are they, you know, taking it as an insult because you're not like in a, in, in a, in a, in a joke-telling session or uh, a dozen session? It would seem to me that the white boys who were yelling from the school bus meant it as an insult. <laughs> okay. As a, as a real insult and not as a, as a joke. Okay. Right. So you also have a chapter on girls verbal play and you say, you know, as I, m- I mentioned, you say that girls also play dozens, but they also play um, ring games and jump rope, which is, I guess, something that boys um, don't do. Um, and they, also talk about the same subjects that boys talk about in their verbal play, but it's also a way for girls to learn about the expectations of womanhood. So what, what in, in the book you write, quote, uh, what girls learn from their elders, friends, and older sisters can possibly d- uh, be described by presenting a few of their games because, as Gum noted in 1898, if children saw a custom periodically and often practiced with some degree of ceremonial importance, they would, in their own way, act and play what their elders do seriously. And Gum, that you mentioned in that uh, quote, she was a British folklorist 
who pioneered the study of children's folklore in the late 19th and 20th and early 20th centuries. Um, so I'm curious, from your research, how did this kind of learning happen with the games that you witnessed from girls playing throughout your research? Well, let's see. Uh, girls play jump rope mm-hmm. and hand claps mm-hmm. and ring games and incorporated into the words of these games, there are certain images of what a girl should be mm-hmm. and what the expectations of women are. Mm-hmm. And I found that there was a combination of, as, as the girls played it, an acceptance in some ways mm-hmm. of the expectations and yet a satirical, ironic commentary on those same expectations. And I can give you just one example to to give you an idea of how, say, white children and black children had differing views. Would you like me to give you an example? Yes, I'd love to hear it. There is a really old jump rope rhyme I collected it from my mother, mm-hmm. and her friends knew it as well. My mom played it in the 1920s, and I think anybody listening to this would recognize it. It's a jump rope that goes, I like coffee, I like tea, I like the boys, and the boys like me. And that encapsulates an expectation. Girls are expected to like boys. Boys are expected to like girls, and, you know, pretty much that's the way it is. But in New Orleans, I also got an example of I like coffee, I like tea, which was extended, and it became, well, here it is. I like coffee, I like tea. I like the colored boy, and he likes me, so stop that white boy. Me don't shine. I'm going to give that boy a kick in the behind. Last night, the night before, I met my boyfriend at the candy store. He bought me ice cream. He bought me tea. He brought me home, and he tried my gate. I said, Mama, Mama, I feel sick. Call the doctor. Quick, quick, quick. Doctor, doctor, will I die? Close your eyes and count to five. One, two. Three, four, five. See that house on top of the hill? That's where me and my boyfriend live. Cook that chicken, eat that rice. Come on, baby, let's shoot some dice. Hmm. So, as I say in my book, what had been a simple four-line jump rope jingle for the white children became, for this group of fifth and sixth graders, a hand clap event featuring a story with a beginning, a middle, and an end. Mm -hmm. The most important change is the shift in attitude. This game is no fairy tale and has no fairy tale ending like the white version. Things are not so simple as I like the boys and the boys like me. Cast in the form of a lengthened cautionary poem the game reflects an appreciation for the real world, where if the boys like me, there are consequences. Interesting. So uh, the girls would, it seems like maybe the girls, uh, um, yeah, it, it does seem to reflect um, um, what like, uh, you know, real life consequences or real life events in a way that, um, you know, from what I understand, boys' verbal play really doesn't do. I mean, were there, uh, were there any similarities or something similar that happened with boys' verbal play? Well, with boys' vocal play, a lot of it is around saying dirty words, mm-hmm. um, challenging one another as to how much sex knowledge they have. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there's just a lot of physical activity with boy play too. Even when they're talking to one another, they're bopping one another in the head or jabbing each other with their finger. Whereas with girls, it just seems like it's more of a collective 
voice mm-hmm. when the girls play. Mm-hmm. Mm. And you also say that these kinds of things also serve as, um, I guess, a, a, a teaching uh, mechanism where older kids kind of teach young kids, right? Absolutely. Oh, yes. The playground is a learning center. And it, it functions in several ways. The lore of children begins to be passed on at about three, I discovered, mm-hmm. when I went to nursery schools. And these little bitty tiny people already knew hand claps, and they were out there just chanting away. Um, then it proceeds on through jump rope games, hand claps, ring games, teases and taunts all the way through the about the eighth grade when most girls, not necessarily boys, that's a different situation, but when most girls stop playing hand claps, jump rope, and other ring games, at that point, right around the eighth grade, it seems, I could be wrong, but it seems to me that at about the eighth grade, girls become more interested in makeup and boy and uh, boys as boyfriends rather than contest people. Mm-hmm. And then they, they're more interested in playing on their phone. They're more interested in getting on the computer and, and looking at YouTube. Uh, so for many girls, not all, hand claps, jump rope, and ring games just sort of dwindle away in middle school. And then they, there are some things that continue, which are folkloric, like cheering. Mm-hmm. Cheers are considered, in my book, folklore. So people continue with cheers. They always tell jokes. They tell scary stories. Mm-hmm. They, they tell legends like Slender Man and things like that, that have uh, become popular, you know, Fortnite's going to appear at your door and do something to you. These things are really big, I find, with 12-year-olds. So if you're going to collect child lore, you more or less have to confine yourself to children of, say, three and four to 12. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, that sounds sounds about right. I think when I was a kid, I played um, some of these games probably up to, um, yeah, 9 or 10, maybe 11. So that sounds, uh, yeah, so just right off before, you know, I guess right before um, being a teenager. Um, i like to go back to um, ring games. Um, for those for those uh, people who are not familiar with ring games, so it's it's kind of like a chant. Everybody stands in a circle, and then there's a chant, and the, some. And is it usually there's somebody in the middle, right, who kind of leads a chant, or is it just the fact that you it, uh, stand in a circle and chant together? It depends on the game. Okay. Uh, for instance, you can you can have like the little kids sing, you know, roundabout, roundabout, and then they just hold hands and go in a circle, and then they all fall down. Right. Uh, Nobody's in the middle. Right. Okay. But I did collect games where a central player stepped in Mm -hmm. and demonstrated the actions and everybody imitated. And those were predominantly African-American games. Mm Mm-hmm. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. 
If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. Okay. Um, One really interesting aspect that, you know, I discovered from reading your book is that you write that children's games are a mix of conservation and innovation. So, and I'm going to quote you from your book. Um, You say, quote, many children in Southern Louisiana are among the conservators of particular traditional games at the same time the inventors of varied and clever new ones, end quote. So I want to talk about the first part, the conservation, and then later on we'll talk about the invention of, of varied and clever new ones. I was really struck by the ring game that you observed among the black and white children um, and uh, who played this, and it had its roots in uh, nineteen in nineteenth century English Ireland and Scotland, um, because I had participated in a similar ring game when I was a kid, um, and this is in the seventies, and I had no idea that this rhyme was like a hundred years old. So I'm I'm gonna read I'm gonna read out the uh, eighteen ninety four version that you had and. You know, uh, I don't know if it sounds like it probably doesn't sound like how the kids, uh, you know, uh, chanted out um, in your research. But I'm just going to read it. So the 1894 version, um, which Alice um, Gum, the uh, British folklorist, um, uh, uh, collected, she said it goes like this. Sally, Sally Slaughter, sitting by the water, crying out and weeping for a young man. Rise, Sally, rise. Dry your eyes. Turn to the east turn to the West, uh, turn to the young man that you love best. So now you've got married. I hope you enjoy your sons and your daughters. So kiss, uh, so kiss and, uh, so kiss and goodbye. So, and sorry for that terrible reading, but I'm, I'm really struck by that because I do remember a version of that. Um, but I'll read the, uh, the 1974 version that you collected, which is little Sally Walker sitting in a saucer, a weeping and crying for a whole glass of water. Rise, Sally, rise. Wipe your weeping eyes. Shake it to the east. Shake it to the west. Shake it to the one you love best. Mom, mama says so. Papa says so. That's what you do it when you want to get a bow. So in the 1974 version, you know, they're, um, they are, they're in a ring and then they're in, and there's a girl in the center, I guess, uh, uh, or actually, maybe, uh, yeah, and I guess the girls on the on the ring they Im- imitate like whatever action she makes. Um, and I I recall something like this too. Like I I definitely recall the turn to the east, turn to the west, turn to the young man that you love best. Um, and mm-hmm. that the eighteen ninety four version, nineteen seventy four version that you collected is also a little bit um, different as well. So um, I'm just really I just I'm just thinking about. How similar, you know, this has survived in um, over a hundred years, and I'm wondering um, why have they persisted on the playground for so long, and why haven't they become outdated? Um, they obviously changed a little bit. And my other question is, um, were they played in a similar way? Was that early rhyme also played as a ring game? Were they played? What's that? The early, what was the last the, part you said the the eight. Um, the 1894 version um, that Alice Gum collected, mm-hmm. was that also played as a ring mm-hmm. game or was that just like a playground rhyme? That's interesting. Um, I don't know if I made it clear. Let me think. I don't remember. I, okay. I'd have to look up Gum right now to decide whether she was putting it in her section on ring games or whether she put it in her section on line games. But I think it was a ring game. And the idea that something can persist for over a hundred years is not unusual at all in children's play. Uh, there mm-hmm. are a number of games that were recorded by Mrs. Gum that are still played today with slight variations, just like you saw there. For example, the line. Shake it to the east, shake it to the west, shake it to the one that you love the best is mm. 
the same idea as turn to the east, turn to the west, but it's been modernized. Mm-hmm. And I found this in a number of the games that came from 1894 and 1898 that Gum had collected, still played, but with variants that make them modernized. Mm-hmm. And I, in fact, I'm writing about that right now. <laughs> I, I I would love to read that at some point. Um, yeah, I, you know, uh, I would imagine that the uh, the game itself was um, would be different. You know, I uh, you know the the actions that you do. I do remember shaking to the, <laughs> shaking it to the west, shaking it to the east, and shaking it to the west, <laughs> and when you thrust out your hips. Yeah. <laughs> and I think I was about uh, probably like eight, I think. And so um, reading this book really brought really brought some memories. I could only remember one or two rhymes, but the ones that I mean, I'm sure if I read, you know, more, your whole catalog, some more would come into mind. But that was the one that um, really came to mind. And this this is a kind of a question and I and another question. So another one that um, really came to mind was um, uh, the one about Sally died. Um, and it's it, it's kind of it's a little bit like a call and response ring game. Sally died. How she died. She died like this. And then the leader strikes a death pose. Um, or some kind of pose, but when we were a kid, we were trying to be like sexy, you know, little kids, I guess, even even back then, or mm-hmm. somehow attractive to to boys or something. And um, mm-hmm. I'm wondering, what's who's Sally? Because you know, sh- there's so many variations <laughs> about Sally. Excellent question. Really, there's no rhyme or reason for the names to be chosen as far as I can tell. Someone may have come up with a reason for the name Sally. Um, It just seems to be uh, like Susie. Mm -hmm. You know, Susie had a baby. Uh, Sally had a baby. Uh, It's an easy word to say, and it fits a lot of categories. So I just think that these names that are used are easy names. That's all I can say because okay. I I couldn't put a finger on the historic reasons. Okay, for right. their use. Fair fair enough. I just thought that maybe she had some historical um, significance. There was somebody you know named Sally, and something happened to her, and there was a rhyme about her, and then suddenly it just kind of like roll, you know, started rolling, and you know, created all these different rhymes. Um, okay, the, the games are so widespread that um, it, it wouldn't fit. You see, if, if you put your finger on one Sally, why does Sally end up in New York and why does Sally end up in Australia? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, no, Sally's just an easy word. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so, also ends up in Australia. So, uh, these rhymes are, you know, not just in America, but also in Australia. They're everywhere that people speak English. Uh <laughs> Brian Sutton Smith spoke about, uh, he did entire studies on kids in New Zealand who were saying the same games that Miss Scum had collected. Mm-hmm. And I, when I read his work, um, he, he, several of the games that I had collected were also collected in New Zealand. Uh, some were collected in Canada. Uh, some were collected in states as far distant as, say, Washington State and Florida. So children move around. And mm-hmm. when they do, they bring their lore with them and they pass it on to the kids they're playing with on the playground. And there might be a change in name. Say, Sally becomes Susie in another version of the of the game, but it's still the same game. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, you also state that many adults also think of children as innocent and ignorant of the realities of life from which they must be protected. Um, but you also say that children are often quite aware of what's going on in the world. And as we, you know, as you know, 
we see, as we heard from you know the the dirty dozens that you um, uh, uh, examples that you gave us, they also tell dirty jokes and stories. And um, it seems that children's plays also influenced or representative of the contemporary world, as you, as you know in your book. Um, you've seen you know the kung fu movies on uh, the playground in the seventies because of the popularity of Bruce Lee movies. Um, kids breakdancing in the eighties, the reworking of Michael Jackson songs and chants that comment on his life. Um, another idea that adults seem to have about children in this day and age is that they're becoming too worldly, much too early. And so based on your body of research over the years, have you seen an increase of worldly sophistication? Um, you know, young people can access so much more these days in the internet, on the internet, so information and, you know, maybe adult content much more readily available. But have you witnessed a change or is this also a function of adults misremembering their own childhood? Well, I think you had a very good word there when you said adults misremember how much they knew when they were children. Mm -hmm. uh, Somehow or other, I have, I have a very vivid memory of my own childhood, and I was not uninformed or innocent in the sense that many adults want to, uh, I want to call children. Right. Uh, I, I understood what was happening around me, maybe not the political ramifications of what I was hearing on the radio and the television, mm -hmm. but I certainly knew who to stay away from and who to be friends with because of a variety of reasons. Um, we talked about what our parents did when we weren't around. Um, we questioned authority. Mm -hmm. um, we were a lot more aware, I think, than many adults think we are. And I think the reason is they don't mm -hmm. listen to us. Mm -hmm. Adults tend to talk adult stuff with other adults, even with the kids in the room, mm -hmm. and don't often realize the kids are listening to every word they say. And so children are not uninformed. Um, there are parents who purposely and intentionally attempt to keep their children in their eyes innocent. But if those kids play on a playground, they're going to hear what the other children are saying. Right. So, you know, they get, they get informed. Now, today, you asked if kids are more tuned into what? What they see on YouTube? Yes. Are kids more in, in tuned to what they see on whatever they pick up when they're alone on the computer? Yes. There is more out there to influence kids today than I think there was when I was on the playground. Mm -hmm. Because we had a certain limited um, amount of information that we could pass on. Whereas mm -hmm. if you get on the computer, there's all this stuff, mm -hmm. you know, that's there. And the, and the boys and the girls say, hey, you know, get this, you know, and then they tell them what to watch. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that there is a chance that there's more uh, information for kids today than there was when they were younger. Does it stop them from playing? No. Mm -hmm. uh, there has been the false idea for quite a long time, that children do not play anymore. That is not true. Their play may have changed. They might be sending pictures of each other on the phone to one another, mm -hmm. or they might be taking pictures of something and sending the picture that they took or, or sharing a meme, but they're still playing. Mm -hmm. Children play. Yeah, I think that. Um... You know, I think, I wonder if um, adults think that in this day and age, children are losing their innocence um, because they're not playing the way they played when they were kids. And I mean, certainly, you know, when I was young, when I was younger, there was limited amount of information. Like, you know, there was this TV, right? 
and limited number of channels. And today there's just a lot more information that uh, kids can draw from and many more ways in which they can play too. So um, I think that, you know, when I was, I'm trying to remember when I played, um, you know, what kinds of things I played on uh, as a kid, you know, there, yeah, there are the jump rope rhymes, um, running around on the playgrounds, uh, board games, but nowadays they um, they play differently. But you know, people lament that children are uh, that children play, but they are too immersed in video games and electronic forms of communications or on the smartphone all the time. Um, do you think that there uh, and uh, do you think that they do you think it's the element of um, creativity that they think counts as um, as a play, and uh, these video games may not, you know, may not kind of stimulate their creativity. Hmm, that's a really, really good question, and it is almost unanswerable at the moment. I look back on my childhood, and I probably had a childhood very much like yours. I was very free. I got mm-hmm. out in the yard in the morning, rode a bicycle around the neighborhood, was outside a great deal, intermingling with other children. Uh, I have noticed in the last years that I taught and in watching my youngest grandchildren that playtime is much more restricted. Mm -hmm. Uh, The only kids who get to run around and, and, you know, carry on in the neighborhood are the kids whose parents probably act like my parents did. Y'all go play. Hmm. You know, my parents said, y'all go play. There's Mm -hmm. an actual name for it today. Now they call it free range parenting. Okay. (laughs) I love it. Free range, like chickens. Uh huh. Yes, like okay. they can run around yeah. and do whatever they want. <laughs> exactly, and we did that. We climbed trees. We we made up uh, little plays and put them on in the backyard. I mean, you know, we did all this stuff, which many of the children I'm looking at right now are confined to play dates. Uh, once they get to the play date, some of the parents actually organize the play. Um, I think that there has been a change, but I, at the same time, am aware that children are still passing on the play lore that I recorded. It's still there. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have so, kids in that miserable... F- mm-hmm. No, go ahead. Please finish your thought. Oh, oh, there's only 15 minutes of playtime at school now uh, in many schools, whereas we used to have a half an hour of recess time. And man, we ran yeah. out on that playground and we jumped rope like mad and we came in all sweaty. And with a 15 minute play period, it's much less of a chance to intermingle. Mm-hmm. So, yes, there are certain restrictions, but the lore is still being passed on. Yes. Mm. Yeah, I think, it. you know, I really liked what you wrote. And you said that electronic age has simply added, not superimposed, a new play world for children. So, you know, in thinking about what I said about, you know, our kids still, um, or ask, uh, our kids just kind of, you know, just, you know, sitting, sitting down and playing a game on their smartphone, you know, whatever, whatever game uh, that they're playing right now. Um, But you say, but, you know, it's not, children aren't just playing these games, but they're also using this electronic media um, to play, you know, being in creative about like doing emojis, sending um, pictures, I'm assuming sending pictures of them, I don't know, making funny faces. I actually really don't know. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just guessing right now. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's still, I guess there's still that, I mean, would you say that there's still that element of creativity even within this electronic media in addition to the ring games that they're still playing in the yard? Yes, I agree. Uh, There are electronic games. There's, I don't know, Nintendo in the olden days, and now it's (laughs) much more advanced uh, video games. But uh, 
for example, just to give you an example, my youngest grandson is 11. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that he and his friends did is they made puppets of some of the characters on one of their favorite uh, video games. Mm-hmm. And they would play with the puppets. They'd go out in the backyard and play with those ridiculous puppets and had a wonderful time. We used to do that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And so that is still alive. And the urge to to embroider, I suppose is the word, the, the urge to continue with a creative element in spite of the restrictions of the electronic medium mm-hmm. is there. Kids mm-hmm. will play and mm-hmm. they just are playing differently. They're playing differently. Mm-hmm. And you, you mentioned that, you know, they were still playing these, you know, ring games from, you know, our childhoods um, on the playground mm-hmm. since the last time you, uh, you said since the last time you observed in when you were still teaching about, when was that? When you last taught? I stopped teaching in 2010. I stopped teaching okay. in 2010, but I didn't stop collecting. Okay. And so kids are still playing these ring games that, you know, mm-hmm. okay. Yeah, that was that was a question I was kind of um, interested in um, asking you about. So during the, this pandemic, you know, kids aren't really going to school, you know, in person. They don't have the opportunity to really kind of um, play in the yard. So how did how did that affect kids play during the during the pandemic or how did the pandemic affect the kids play children's play children's folklore i have not had a chance yet mm-hmm. to assess anything like that because i was very much required to stay in the house right and i didn't have a chance to communicate much with my my base which mm-hmm. would be small children who were also being confined into the house so I don't know. Okay. I don't Fair know enough. what the pandemic did. Right. Right. I guess we'll hear more later on as schools open up about how they, yes, about how they played. And I know that in the, in the, the one person that I had the observation of, that was my grandson. He played on the computer endlessly. And I, I didn't like mm-hmm. that. You know, I kept <laughs> handing him books and saying, you got to read this, you know, and, he would read it, and then we would discuss it, but that's not play. Right. You know, right. that's education. or The computer, he was able to talk to his friends. Uh, you know, they would get on a, a game, and, and he would talk to one friend, and the friend would talk back to him. But again, that's not the interaction where you look at each other's eyes, and you touch each other's shoulder, and you run. Mm-hmm. These things didn't happen. Hmm. Mm. Well, I I think that uh, you know I've taken up a lot of your time. It's been really interesting, but I feel like I, um, there's one question I I forgot to ask you. And I want to ask you um, Chinese jump rope. Mm-hmm. I didn't see Chinese jump rope in your uh, in your book, and maybe have observed a lot of it because that was a bit that was a big part of my childhood. But you know what? We didn't really do rhymes with that, and I know it's different from you know jump rope or double dutch um did you observe mm-hmm. did, what what did you see um about did you see yeah what did you what did you uh, observe about chinese jump rope okay very good question it's very much part of book number two okay. which is coming out in october and it's called what the children said and in it i have a whole section on how children refer to the Chinese Mm -hmm. and how often the word Chinese is used in their games to represent the exotic, Mm -hmm. the unusual. Mm -hmm. And Chinese jump rope is discussed. Um, It's like a circle of rubber bands, or in some cases, it's an actual jump rope that is supplied but many of the kids that I saw play it had linked together what looked like headbands, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then they would jump in, jump out, jump on, jump in, jump out, jump on, and both feet then, and that was the way it was played. That's pretty was much it ex- played differently. Yeah, that's pretty much exactly how I remembered it. <laughs> there wasn't there wasn't a chant to go okay. with it. 
we just kind of like, uh, we just said out loud what we were doing. <laughs> and uh, that's right. Uh, that's right. That's what they'd say. Jump in, jump out, jump on. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, I and I remember this is the only thing that made me cool. I think in elementary school, everybody had those um, elastic, like elastic band that uh, they bought, and I was really jealous of. It and I wanted one. My parents wouldn't get me one. So my sister, my older sister, who's about seventeen year old older than I am, she taught me how to link rubber bands together. And so yes. after that, yes. I had the coolest jump rope because mine was multicolored and it didn't hurt, you know, like some of the other ones may have been too, like, you know, uh, too small. And we had, uh, mm -hmm. and ours, uh, ours didn't, you know, mine, did, mine was very easy. This has been a really uh, great conversation about um, children's folklore. Um, I loved reading your book, loved reading your book. It just brought back a, little a lot of memories and you just, you know, provided such insight into like these, you know, childhood memories of um, of uh, schoolyard games. And um, you mentioned a little bit more, but I think before we go, can I ask you what your next project is? Okay. Uh, the first was to sort of collate everything that I had done into a book called What the Children Said. And mm -hmm. that is coming out, University of Mississippi Press, October of this year, 2021. And my next project is to explore exactly something that you asked me about, the history of how these games are passed down. It's not easy to do because you can't always put your finger on how a game moved from, say, one location, Canada, to Australia, and then from Australia to Louisiana. But you can go to other people who collected these games and say, okay, Gum collected it in 1894, and then it was collected again in England in 1959, and then it was collected again in 1920 or whatever, 1970, and then I collected it. Hmm. So I'm taking a couple of games and plotting the changes in wording, the changes in attitude, and the changing is changes in mode of play for several games, and I'm putting together a series of essays on that. Mm -hmm. That sounds fascinating as well, too. I'm so glad you're doing this research. Well, I think, you know, I've taken a lot of your time already, but I appreciate you coming on to uh, the show and talking uh, to me about uh, talking to me about children's folklore. Um, this is Nancy Ann, and I've been speaking with Dr. Uh, Jean Swallow, author of Yo Mama, Mary Mac, Boudreaux, and Thibodeau, Louisiana Children's Folklore and Play. Thanks again, Jean.